Welcome to Four Scores. I'm your host, John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. In this episode, I'm speaking with Joseph Trapanese, a composer known for his blending of the worlds of song production and film scoring. His big break, working alongside Daft Punk on the score for Tron Legacy, has led to impressive work with an array of artists such as Dr. Dre and M83, and now with director Charlie Bean on the live-action remake of Lady and the Tramp. We caught up with Joe on the Disney lot in Burbank, California, to discuss the challenges of building a new musical world for a beloved classic. So we're here on the Walt Disney Studio lot with Joe Trapanese, who is the composer who's just done Disney's Lady and the Tramp. Joe, tell me where we are and what role this place had in your assignment. We are in my temporary studio on the Disney lot. I, I, for years, I've done certain projects at editorial to be near the filmmakers because in the complicated filmmaking of, of this era, there are visual effects reviews all day, especially on a film like this, animation, all sorts of editing to be done that sometimes it's just great to be this close to the filmmakers because I just walk down to the editorial, see what they're working on. And especially with a score like this, I'm working on songs as well. It's tremendously complicated. So just being close by is great. This is like your home away from home. It is. It is. Um, tell us where you're from originally and maybe just a little bit about your musical background. Absolutely. I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey, right outside of New York. So I was very lucky uh, when I was growing up to be able to go into the city and hear live music and to have great teachers um, and to be exposed to the New York scene of music. Two of the things I remember most about going into the city was in high school, there was a program called High Five where for high school students, you could for $5 get into certain shows. Like I remember going to see the Met Opera, the New York City Opera. I really enjoyed going to see classical music like that. But the other thing that was so much fun for me was going to the places like the Blue Note, experiencing jazz up close like that. There's nothing like it. I remember later I went to Interlock and Arts Camp and there were some bands coming through. I was in like this huge theater in like the back row and I'm like, this stinks. I just saw the Count Basie Orchestra at Blue Note. And I was sitting in the front row. In college there, I was at Manhattan School of Music when I really committed late in college to uh, becoming a film composer. So I, I moved to L.A. and with really nothing, no idea of how I would do this. I had a few phone numbers. Everyone I called was very nice, giving me some advice. And then they said, good luck. So um, it was all through internships and through assistantships and all sorts of odd jobs here and there within the industry that eventually I was able to be recommended for bigger and bigger projects. And here we are today. I could trace them all back. Well, one of your early projects, which actually was a Disney-generated project, was Tron Legacy. It's so interesting to me that that was one of your sort of early big credits. Talk a little bit about that, how you got that, and who you worked with. While I was on the project, I remember thinking many times, how am I here? Why am I doing this? I can't believe I'm working with Daft Punk, and this is crazy. Because I was still in my 20s. You know, we started very early. We started making music for Tron Legacy before we got a script. We just kind of had an idea of what the look and the sound and the feel of the film was going to be like. And Daft Punk was very passionate about Tron, about Tron, uh, the subject matter of the film. It was a huge influence on their aesthetic. It was just my introduction to Disney and the history of Disney and introduction to the world of working with artists. 
really looking back on it, I realized one of the reasons why I was able to do it was one, because we started so early and it was an experiment. I was young and cheap. I was affordable. <laughs> so for Disney's point of view, they're going, okay, this is such a wacky experiment. Like we're not sure how this is going to work. So I kind of checked off that one box where it was like, okay, Joe can be the right fit for this. Another box was Daft Punk wanted to work with someone who wasn't necessarily tied into the Hollywood scene. They wanted to work with someone who had obviously had some experience and knowledge to help them, but also wasn't so tied in that they would come into the situation saying, this is how we do it. This is how you should do it. This is how we're going to do it. You know, they wanted someone who was a true collaborator. So I was green enough. I wasn't completely green, but I was green enough for that project. And then finally, I was just, I was, I was a very weird kid musically because I fell in love with film music through Star Wars. So I played in youth orchestras. I played trombone. I loved learning about arranging and orchestration and composition. But I also grew up with computers and I loved making music in the computer. I was like the weird kid who was not only learning about 20th century theory and harmony, but then I would go down to the basement and play with a bunch of synthesizers. For a long time, those were two completely separate paths. And it wasn't until I got to Los Angeles that it was obvious. It was like, oh my gosh, I have this incredible skill set that plays well with each other. I think that's what Daft Punk saw. And they saw that I could not only help them uh, integrate the orchestra into their work, but also have a tremendous respect uh, for their work and make sure that what they were doing, what they brought to the table electronically was taken care of as well. And we all together, like there were times where I was doing electronic programming and they were telling me to revoice a chord in the orchestra, you know, so it was, it was very much a two-way street. It was not just, oh, just come in and throw some orchestra on our stuff. It was like a two-year collaborative effort at every step. That is so exciting. And I know after that, you worked with other artists who were working in film uh, as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your other collaborations. You know, I had such an incredible time working on projects like The Raid with Mike Shinoda, Oblivion with M83. And to this day, I'm, I've continued working with artists from time to time on different projects, whether it's an album project or a film score. It's so much fun for me because I'm not only am I able to help uh, create a, an aspect of storytelling, which which is what I love to do, but I learn a lot from them. You know, I, I learn tricks and techniques that I carry into my work. And I remember when we first met, you were working on Straight Outta Compton. That's right. And and I remember Dr. Dre, I think, came to your studio. Oh, did. It was amazing. <laughs> so the first music that I absolutely fell in love with was hip hop, was gangster rap. And Dr. Dre was like, obviously, you know, one of the patron saints of that music. So the fact that he just walked into my studio one afternoon, you know, to listen to this score was truly moving. First of all, when someone has that sort of musical background and taste making and that sort of history, when they come in and kind of nod their head and say that you're doing good work, you know, that's a really awesome thing. He was so down to earth and super positive and super encouraging and had great notes that made the score better, that made the movie better. So it was like, oh, here's a guy who's been working really hard for so long and he's still just a humble guy who just likes making cool stuff. And, and, you know, I think you may have the most unique resume of any composer in Hollywood, given all these artist collaborations. I was noticing this morning, you've worked with Kelly Clarkson and Moby. Yes, I have. Yes. And I, I to this day, continue to be in touch with them and, and work with them from time to time. You know, to me, we're making art together. 
And what's fun about collaboration is when I run out of ideas, I could turn to someone and say, hey, what do you think? And all of a sudden we're back to creating versus if I'm alone, sometimes I run out of ideas. I have to go take a walk or something, you know? So, <laughs> so earlier you mentioned the name Charlie Bean, who's your director on Lady and the Tramp. How did you guys meet? Uh, we were on the tail end of Tron Legacy and Disney came to uh, Daft Punk and said, hey, we're developing an animated series based on this IP, based on Tron. Would you want to be involved? And they said, well, why don't you hire Joe? And so I... I That's a nice recommendation. I, it is. I, I owe a lot to many people who've been, who've been so supportive of me throughout my career, and especially Daft Punk. So they recommended me for that, and Charlie and I have been close ever since. And we live in the same neighborhood. So when I saw he was going to do Lady and the Tramp, he, he emailed me and said, hey, man, let's go get a drink. We went to our local bar in the neighborhood and just spent a couple hours just talking about Lady and the Tramp, what it means to us what the music means to us and how we could come up with an interesting concept for the film musically. So what about the 1955 original animated film? Did you remember it? Did you know it? Was that in a part of your childhood? That's a great question. It was part of my childhood. I saw it very young, but I hadn't seen it in many, many years. I, I of course, remembered the scenes we all remember. I've rewatched it. And the surprising thing to Charlie and I, after we spent time with the original film, is how... 50s it is. Obviously, it was, it's made in 1954, comes out in 1955. So our film takes place in early 1900s. That kind of kicked off this whole idea of, all right, what music was popular at that time? What, what was being heard? One of the things I said to Charlie early on was like, you know, what was so great about music at that point in time is that to experience music, you had to go seek out a live performance. Now, there were phonographs, but they cost about the same as a Model T at that time. So, you know, if you could afford a phonograph, you know, you're, you're probably pretty wealthy. For the common people to experience music, you had to have a piano in your house, you had to have a guitar, a violin, or you had to go out and hear it. So music was very alive. And that actually wound up influencing the movie. Jim Deere is a musician. Darling is a singer. There are scenes written into the script with music on camera that are not related to the original song. So it was this amazing case of the music of the film influencing the movie before the movie was even done and the score was even done. It's incredible. Was there a script at that point? How early were you in? Were you brought I, in? I was. I think there was a script, but I did not get a script probably until uh, several weeks after those initial meetings. Was it already set in New Orleans? We knew it was going to be shot in Savannah. Um, so that's why we went to New Orleans, because that is where that popular music of the time, the Louis Armstrong, early jazz, traditional New Orleans music, that's where obviously the birthplace of it, and we want to plug into that, you know? So, so that's fascinating to me, that you actually went to New Orleans and actually recorded there. Did you begin writing early on and take that music to the Big Easy? What we took to New Orleans was actually we recorded a lot of versions of He's a Tramp. He's a tramp, but we love him. Pulls a new scam every day. He's a tramp, we adore him, and we know he'll always stay that way. We focused on He's a Tramp, and we also did some versions of You Made Me Love You, which is a jazz standard that was really popular at that time period. You know, we wanted to give the impression that when Jim Deere put on a record at his house, it was like, oh, here's the hip new song, you know, <laughs> like we got it, you know. We wanted uh, a standard of the day and we wanted, uh, we treated He's a Tramp as if it was a standard of the day. That was kind of the MO uh, going down there. 
And we had an incredible ranger named Sarah Morrow who knew all the musicians down there. So she was able to help put together lead sheets and source the musicians. And half the musicians we worked with didn't even read music. Having someone like Sarah involved who, who worked with these musicians before, who had lived in New Orleans, she's, uh, she's, she was Dr. John's producer oh, um, and played trombone with Dr. John. And like she played trombone for Ray Charles. She's an amazing musician in her own right. I had never been to New Orleans. That, was, that is a foreign world to me, that music. So it was one of the most invigorating, inspiring weekends for me because I would never say that music isn't alive in Los Angeles, but music is alive in New Orleans in a very special way. These traditions are very much alive. And the musicians we work with, you could tell they've been playing this music since they could hold up an instrument. It was incredible. So to what degree did that then influence what you would do later when you came back and started working on the score? It was hugely influential. It's, it's interesting. We probably recorded, you know, several hours of material down there because we just let the musicians go. We did different tempos. You know, I would definitely give feedback, obviously, but our goal was to really just kind of plug into that current that's already running, you know? So we come back with hours of material and we picked out a few select things that actually wound up being really influential in the movie. There's a scene that unfortunately was cut from the film, but where Tramp has waken up and he's walking past the riverboat. And there was a really slow version of He's a Tramp that the musicians were playing. And Tramp went, oh, I love this song, you know. <laughs> so that's one little Easter egg that maybe, I don't know if there are maybe such it'll things make as the DVD. DVD extras. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Disney Plus, how that works, but we'll find out. For instance, there's another scene on the riverboat where they're playing You Made Me Love You. There's a scene where there's uh, one of the types of music that was very much popular at the time was Piedmont Blues, which is like an early type of blues. So we brought in a guitarist and a harmonica player because those were the common instruments for that blues. The harmonica player is actually on screen in the film. They flew him to set. And early on in the film was Tramp is walking from the, the train yard into town. He passes the harmonica player and they're playing some of the music we recorded in New Orleans. Um, and so it's this part of the score, but not part of the, you know, but, but on screen. So, you know, it really establishes the language of the movie very early on, the language of what we're seeing visually, what we're hearing sonically. It's, it's exciting. <laughs> Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Joseph Trapanese's Lady and the Tramp and Tron Legacy. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. You know what's interesting to me is a good deal of the score is actually orchestral. And I wonder, could you talk a little bit about why that was the right approach and why that worked for this film? There's nothing like an orchestra, obviously, you know, um, and I think one thing that was very important to us was understanding the worlds of Lady and the worlds of Tramp through different musical lenses, so to speak. So Tramp lives on the streets, he's improvising, so we decided that his music would be that music of the day, that traditional or New Orleans sound, improvised, light on its feet, quick moving, quick thinking. And ladies' music would come from the more refined, because her family's kind of upper middle class, so more refined, more trained, more classical, more measured. It was really cool to think of those two things. And then there was a third type of music that was orchestral that we called the home theme, which is more in the Aaron Copeland type of Americana. Sure. Yeah, and that was just a thrill to, to put that together, you know? <laughs> you know, but my question is, do they blend? 
do they have to blend? I mean, you could talk about blues and Copeland-esque Americana and jazz, and you think, well, aren't those really three different fields? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, that's what made, I think, this film very dynamic. You know, you can switch gears into a different kind of music and really kick off a new scene. Like, there's a, one of my favorite scenes to work on was when Lady kind of finagles her way onto the riverboat, and we hear Lady's theme, but it's the first time you hear Lady's theme with the jazz band. Tramp's kind of rubbing off on Lady, like his attitude is kind of enabling her to kind of have that attitude. And then their music does start mixing together where you hear the orchestra kind of playing a waltz for their dinner date, but then you also hear Tramp's, the trumpet kind of playing over that. One really important thing we did in New Orleans, uh, Nate Wonder came out. Nate works with Janelle Monet, who was obviously a huge influence on the musical character of the score through being pegged, through singing He's a Tramp. Nate came with a rough vocal, some vocal ideas. My goodness, the version of He's a Tramp that's on the record is very close. It's 90% what we recorded that weekend in New Orleans. So that's a very important thing we got done. <laughs> it is. And it's so interesting to me that you were involved with the songs as well as, a, as the score, because that doesn't always happen. It's something I'm very passionate about, I think. And I guess this kind of comes out of my background collaborating. I think the more I could unify the music of the film, the better. And so this was such a cool case of, you know, because of my relationship with Charlie, because of my history with Disney and, and knowing what I can do, they felt comfortable with me taking on most of the song production. Of course, Janelle's team took on uh, the new Cat song. Ugh, look at this place. Yeah, we're going to need to make some changes. Ooh, what a shame. That was a two-way street. They were coming to my sessions. I was involved in their sessions. The sound of New Orleans influenced those songs. We had a lot of the same musicians on all those songs. Even with all the different kinds of music, all the different kinds of styles, it still felt like one voice. And I don't mean my voice. I just mean the film's voice. You know, it felt like it was coming from this film. Um, so what about Charlie? What's your collaboration like? How did you guys work together, especially given the fact that this is so visual effects driven? He must have been super busy at the time you were working on the score. Did you guys make time to get together? How did it work? Oh, yeah. we A lot of conference calls. I flew to set quite a bit because obviously there was like a lot of uh, on-screen music that I had to be helpful with. I'm actually in the band on the riverboat sometimes. Oh, really? Um, yeah, you'll see me in the movie. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> definitely that was not planned. That's a longer story that we have time for. Charlie has all his life been a music fan. He grew up in L.A., someone who's just a great artist and highly interested in music. So we, you know, first of all, we're lucky to develop a shorthand working together. So I think that's one of the coolest things you could have with a director, a director that they feel like they don't need to babysit you because there's so many things that need babysitting. It's awesome when I could work with a filmmaker and they realize, hey, Joe's got my back. That's where the magic really happens is before a note is written, before you sit down at a piano is in those early discussions. Charlie and I, Basically, we set the blueprints up for this movie before a frame was shot so that when things get super, super crazy, like he doesn't have to worry about me. It's really awesome to have a relationship like that where, you know, it's based on that trust of I'm going to achieve this vision we set out for. And he's going to check in as much as possible and like help guide me there and kind of nudge me here and there, you know, but we are all kind of going towards the same goal. That is really amazing when that happens. I kept thinking about your Italian heritage during the dinner scene 
with Lady and the Tramp when Joe and, and Tony are preparing the Italian dinner there. I wondered if there was anything about that <laughs> moment that particularly appealed to you. Uh, what appealed to me is not um, not having too much accordion. I think, no, I think, <laughs> no, I think you know, like, obviously, Bellinotte is a thing. You have to have that. Oh, this is the night. It's a beautiful night. And we call it Bella Notte. And we had long, early talks about that. I made many mock-up versions. I brought musicians over multiple times to kind of find the right vein for that. You know, so we spent a lot of time there. But it's funny, we didn't spend any time thinking about if that scene's going to be scored. I went in to see an early cut of the film, and they had kind of put... um, source music over it meaning like you know it sounded like someone was playing accordion inside the restaurant and so by the time we got to the song i was like oh my gosh so too much accordion (laughs) this is killing me when it came time to score that scene and nobody had asked me to score that scene because everyone was liking the kind of source music but for me personally i was like ah this accordion is driving me crazy and i said you know this scene really is all about the dogs i'm gonna provide the score and provide it from the point of view of the dogs And I think that harkens back to something, Charlie and I, yet again, you know, back over uh, beers at our local bar, you know, we spoke about how we wanted this story to be told from the perspective of the the dogs. Obviously, one of the big changes, Lady in our movie is like, is like she stands up for herself. You know, she's not the damsel in distress, you know. So we wanted people to walk away from this movie feeling like these dogs had real feelings, that they have real goals and desires and they want to be in love and they want a home. Do you have dogs? No, I have a cat. (laughs) And and my cat looks very much like the cats in the movie. It's really really funny. I've had a cat for 14 years. You know, I'm sure one point in my life I'm going to have an amazing dog. And if they told me that one of the dogs in the film was up for adoption, I might run and and get him. (laughs) Most of our dogs are rescues. It really is amazing. Most of the dogs in the film are rescues. Oh, that's fabulous. And they had to be trained. It's insane. It's amazing. They, that you know, some of these dogs needed homes and, you know, Tramp was, they found Tramp on the side of a road in, in New Mexico. Um, and that. they had to, they had to perform surgery on him because I think he had like something in his stomach that was like, it was this crazy story. He was, they found him in a shelter. Like wow. it's amazing. And then they trained him and he's like the smartest, coolest dog you've ever met. Like it's, it's amazing. There's a Christmas element to this film too. I mean, just to add on one more thing for you to deal with. Was it necessary to sort of find a kind of holiday-oriented sound? Uh, well, I definitely said as we were recording, I said, yes, it's, I'm going to finally be able to write a piece with sleigh bells. And um, <laughs> so that was really fun. The last cue in the movie has a nice, nice amount of sleigh bells. You know, a lot of those Christmas elements really come from the original. It opens with Christmas. There's a beautiful solo sung by Donald Novus, who was a, a singer back in the day with, with Disney, and he's singing a, a song that was written for the film called Peace on Earth. The chords underneath it is Silent Night. So we actually re-recorded the harmony elements with our amazing choir here in LA and our amazing orchestra, but then used the original solo voice. That's actually one of the coolest things about this film that I haven't really had a chance to talk about. Disney was so awesome to go back into the vault find the original master tapes of the stems so we can have the vocal elements separately so you'll hear we are able to use the original vocals the original choir elements and add new choir behind it and add orchestra behind it so super cool for disney to like go that extra effort silent as the snowflake in the night holy is the spirit of this night 
for me, it was it was a perfect project in many ways because it touched on so many of my skill sets. Um, kind of what we started talking about is like, you know, my early career is like, and collaborating with artists and producing songs and scoring movies, working with orchestra, but also working with cool sounds. It was really fun. How big was your orchestra? I think at any given moment during the main orchestra sessions, it was something like 86 musicians out there. And then we added uh, four percussionists. We added uh, 16 voices. By the time you add it all up, I think it was like something like 120 musicians, 130 musicians who were part of this sound. And I'm so grateful for that, you know. Why do you think that was the right sound? Why do you think you needed that big a sound? There was such a, an amazing patina to the film, an amazing texture that was in the movie that I wanted to make sure the score and the sound of the songs came from a place of that rich texture of the orchestras you might have at that time. We had a certain microphone set up that mimicked the microphones that were available when the original film was recorded. So we record a lot of the voices with those microphones. So I was, I was very adamant about the production element of this, of making sure that we had a sound big enough for this story, but also that we had the right different lenses, so to speak, and different color palette to achieve a certain amount of nostalgia. We were never afraid of modern scoring. We, you know, there are several moments in the film where the score is very modern and contemporary. But we also wanted to make sure that when we needed to be nostalgic, that we had the right, the right things in place. You know, we'd put so much time into, into understanding the language of the score that when it came time to do some of the really big sequences where we could go more modern, like the carriage chase at the end, it took me a few tries to balance what you might call traditional film scoring with the approach to film scoring we had in our movie. When you get to the carriage chase, it's actually a pretty modern piece of film score. You know, I was so in a box of where we had designed this score that then I had to shift gears. I guess that's one of the hard things because this is a movie made in 2019. You know, we're not going to, let's not be afraid to to be 2019. Yeah, and that scene comes, uh, is, is like the climax of the movie. It is, it is. And to, for that reason, it's so terribly important. It is, it is. But the movie ends on such a wonderful emotional note. I was a mess by the time I got to the end of the picture. And, uh, and I think your score is a huge element of that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really proud of this one. This one, this one, uh, I was a huge mess too at some screenings, you know. So, um, and and you know, if you're not a huge mess with these, see these beautiful puppies being adopted and these dogs finding homes. I mean, you're a cold, heartless soul. <laughs> so, right. so it's partially my score, but I can't. I'm not more powerful than puppies. I think. Hey, Joe, it's been such fun today spending this time talking with you, especially about Lady and the Tramp, which Thank means you. so much to so many people. So thanks. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It'd also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. See you next time.